Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Good afternoon, good evening. It is April 16th, 2020. The phone lines are open. Dial area code 515-602-9747. And I'm your host, Crash Barry, editor-at-large for Mainer News at MainerNews.com. We're a monthly magazine covering Maine. Check us out, MainerNews.com. We've got a good show lined up today. First of all, we want to be hearing your pandemic stories. So give us a jingle when you can. But we're also going to be speaking to a nurse from the front lines of the pandemic at one of Maine's largest city hospitals. And we're going to be calling her Jane to protect her identity because recently another nurse at her hospital got in a little bit of trouble for speaking to the media. So I'm sure this is going to be a very uh, insightful interview about what it's like to work at a hospital during a pandemic. So that's with an interview with Jane, the nurse. But first, uh, in case you haven't heard, a pulp digester at the Androscoggin Mill in Jay, Maine, exploded yesterday around noontime. And this kind of hits close to home for me because I actually live 15 miles uh, approximately from the mill in Jay. And the mill in Jay is a very, very, very important employer in this area of western Maine. Over 500 people work there and three shifts. And the pulp digester exploded, unknown reasons right now, and the Franklin County town was covered in a kind of a paper pulp and chemical mixture. It's called pulp liquor. And they, it's got, um, as part of the process, it's almost like a, a, a big pressure cooker uh, filled with pulp and chemicals and water. And it exploded for unknown reasons. And... This is a major, major blow to our, obviously, Maine's paper industry, uh, the wood uh, products industry, uh, which is important to Maine in so many ways. And this is a terrible blow to our community that's already experiencing the crazy pandemic, um, which is impacting the entire state. Uh, If you... Luckily, the good news is no one was killed. No one was hurt, even. Supposedly, maybe there's a little bit of respiratory issues. Um, When you see the video of this, it's amazing that nobody was killed. And uh, it's very dramatic. It's like a huge tower, and it disappears. So actually, what I have now, in case you haven't heard this, I have some 
audio tape from a video that was running apparently on the dash cam or maybe a phone of one of the truckers who was in line uh, waiting to go into the mill. That's my understanding where this audio comes from. And around here, you see this all. You see these sorts of trucks all the time. They're they're hauling pulp. They're hauling wood chips. I'm sorry. They're hauling wood chips to the mill in Jay. They go down the road near my road all the time. This is a huge part of our economy here in Western Maine, Oxford County, Franklin County. And for something like this to happen is, uh, again, we don't know what's going to happen, just like with the coronavirus. Uh, Warning for sensitive listeners, this has lots of profanity in it because these are truckers uh, apparently talking on CBs. Uh, waiting in line, watching the mill they're about to deliver stuff to explode. So if you're faint of heart, you should probably not listen to this part. But here we go. So obviously those guys are shocked, but also thank goodness no one was hurt, and that's the way, that's the reason why we could probably joke about that tape. If there had been fatalities, obviously we wouldn't be making light of this, and it's still a serious situation because of the you know 500 people who we don't know what's going to happen to their jobs. But that is classic Maine voice there, and we are open ears Maine, so we'd want to hear that audio. And just imagine, if you could, you're like waiting in line to go to work. Well, they're not working there. They're contractors hauling stuff in. They're waiting on the line. There's probably scales or whatever that they're waiting to get in. And then the thing just friggin' blows up. Uh, it happened around noon, and it coated the town of Jay with this pulp mixture. They don't know uh, uh, what the – well, they, they, they claim not to know yesterday. They claim not to know what the health hazard would be. I still haven't heard uh, any official reports about the health hazards of it, other than it can be a skin irritant and that you can clean it up and you should be wearing a mask if you clean it up. So if you're in Jay or the surrounding communities, you should probably clean this stuff up. Um, that being said, it's uh, the chemical that's used, some people claim, is a good fertilizer. Now I saw that in the story in the Lewiston Sun Journal, apparently from a Facebook post from someone, I believe in the town fire department saying, you know what, this stuff is good fertilizer. I don't know if that's true, but uh, obviously if it's on your lawn, you're not going to be able to vacuum this up, but get it off the house and anything else that is coating. But again, uh, terrible, terrible news for the town of Jay. We don't know yet what's happened. We don't know why it happened. Fire marshals, uh, investigators were there today. They'll be back there tomorrow. Um, And we don't know what the impact on the rest of the workers at the mill. Uh, There are paper machines there. They don't, it's a rare instance for uh, for a paper mill to have both the pulp production and the paper production going on at the same time. So there's still, but we don't know what that means. The paper, I think the one of the machines was just reopened last year too. And I've also heard rumors of this because I live in the neighborhood uh, 
that one of the big clients for this mill and Jay that Verso sold last year. Verso was the paper company that owned it. So that owned it. Verso owned the mill and sold it to another company last year that their big client is or was Amazon uh, for wrapping for Amazon packages, which of course Amazon's in a huge bind right now uh, because of coronavirus. I don't know that to be true, but that's what a couple of guys that work down in the mill told me. And uh, there's no reason not to believe them, but they make specialty papers regardless. And when it exploded, the paper pulp chemical slurry uh, got all over the place, miles away, apparently, several miles, and um, coated, and also debris flying everywhere, and kind of a very peculiar smell, if you can imagine. Uh, paper mills smells already. I mean, that kind of sulfur smell that used to smell in downtown Westbrook until S.D. Warren or Sappy cleaned up and put a scrubber on the stack, but it's the smell of money, right, in these towns, and I notice it when I drive into Jay, every time I drive into Jay, because I'm very sensitive to that kind of smell, and where I happen to live uh, isn't downwind of the plant, so I, I don't really get that. Maybe three times a year, we're able to smell the mill, but when you go to Jay, you know, it, it looms up over the town of Jay, because it's, you know, physically imposing, and it's huge, and um, I love Jay. Uh, Jay's kind of like the big, big town for me. Where up until very recently, uh, when Sweetgrass, my wife and I uh, recently purchased a washing machine because we've been without a washing machine for several years. Uh, I weekly would make a trip to Jay uh, to do my laundry at the Depot laundromat, very clean laundromat, and I would have lunch every week. At the new log gardens, a fabulous little Chinese restaurant there, and do my grocery shopping at Hannaford. Uh, and sometimes I would bump into this fella named Bernie. Now, Bernie, I've been thinking about a lot recently uh, because of the pandemic, but also I, I've thought of him several times. I've thought about Bernie several times. But then since yesterday, I really haven't been able to stop thinking about Bernie because Bernie's this ah, Bernie's this weird dude. He walks on the side. He walks everywhere. He's an older fella, probably uh, pushing 75 or so. And he reminds me of somebody in my life that uh, who's passed away, who I love very much and looks kind of like that guy in a weird way. All right, I'll be blunt. He kind of looks like my dad. Bernie kind of looks like my dad in like an alternate universe. He's nothing like my father whatsoever. I know that now because Bernie and I are friends. Uh, but there's just, it's a, it's a, I guess I'm the only one that would see that too. That he looks like my dad. But for some reason, he reminded me of my dad. And I've kind of become friends with him. And when I see him on the side of the road walking to town or back, because he lives about, oh, maybe a three quarters of a mile outside of town, outside of uh the Hannaford. There's really no downtown Jay, really. Uh, so I will pick Bernie up and give him a ride um, to run errands or whatever. And we always talk and sometimes we hang out. And uh, he is definitely touched in the head. And But he's a super sweet dude. And he 
lives in this camper, but like a tiny Winnebago, not the long ones, the kind of shorter squat ones that has like um, busted tires. It's flat tires. It's, um, it's really like, a, it looks like it's an abandoned camper. I'm talking a camper, like, and it's in somebody's dooryard and it has holes in it. And he uses propane to heat this thing. He lives in it year round. He's always wearing several layers of clothes and he sleeps under a couple quilts. I've asked him about that. And it does, yes, it does get very cold in there, but he's kind of been able to deal with it by having camping, sitting over a propane uh, heater. And somebody comes by in the neighborhood and fills up the individual cans. It's like he uses a heater that uh, uses a can that you would use on a gas grill. So somebody fills these up. This is his source of heat. He has no bathroom. He has no running water, as far as I can tell. But, you know, he's, he's touched. He's probably, I mean, I'm no doctor, but mentally ill. Um, apparently, he's not allowed in the Hannaford, and I don't know why, but I can imagine him acting inappropriately in there. I, you know, hang out with him at the laundromat several times. But when he's hungry and he is about to eat lunch, I'll sit there with him while he eats his lunch, and he gets a lunch from McDonald's every day. Every day he walks to town and goes to McDonald's and he gets a hamburger and a McChicken sandwich, but no bun, just a piece of meat and the piece of chicken wrapped in a wrapper. Okay. That's what his meal is. A piece of meat and a piece of chicken. Every day he gets this. And uh, sometimes I see him go to the dollar store and he'll get like uh, bags of potato chips, you know, a box of a, a bunch of potato chips. But he lives in a camper alone in the shadow of the mill there. And needless to say, he doesn't smell very good. And he has uh, literally a million conspiracies to explain his current circumstances. Um, it's kind of mysterious. There's like secret government agents involved, uh, a wartime birth with a secret agent father. Apparently he owns lots of real estate and has tons of money, but he lives in this rundown cold camper in the shadow of the mill. And I know last fall he was bit by a squirrel that was made its way into his camper and he had to go to the hospital and I hung out with him after that and he wasn't looking too good and he's old and he's sickly and I got to wonder like right now in this pandemic, what's he doing? We'll be right back with a nurse named Jane. Means you've got to be smarter than ever at figuring ways to fix the meals your families want, especially since you don't have as many points as you used to. Well, the smartest thing to do is to get extra points by turning in waste fats. You know your meat dealer will give you cash and two red points for every pound you turn in. So get going. You'll be doing yourself a favor and your country an important service. 
for used flats are urgently needed for military medicines, armaments, and a host of things so necessary to win this war. Strain every drop into any tin can, no glass containers, please, and turn them in as soon as you have a pound. Spring is nearly here, and many of our listeners will be getting out their gardening tools, their overalls or shorts to again fry their hands at raising their own vegetables. For most of us, gardening is an enjoyable hobby, and it certainly is a great thrill to see the results of your work come out of the ground right before your eyes. In other lands, many people will also be watching their spring planting grow. CARE, the cooperative for American remittances to Europe, proposes to help meet that need with their new vegetable seed package. It contains 28 varieties of vegetables. In order for families in Europe to start planting, you should order the CARE seed package right away. Total cost, with delivery guaranteed, is $4. Send your orders to Nonprofit CARE, 50 Broad Street, New York, and help a family help themselves. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. The number to call is area code 515-602-9747. We want to hear your coronavirus stories. And joining us now is a Maine nurse who we're going to call Jane to protect her identity as we discuss how COVID-19 has impacted her job and the hospital she works at. Joining us now via the telephone is Jane. Welcome to Open Ears, Maine. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, thank you. And on behalf of many Mainers and, uh, you know, actually probably citizens of this planet, we want to thank you and your hardworking comrades. As a nurse, you're a registered nurse. You've been working at a hospital in Maine for over a year now. Um, How has this pandemic changed your job? Well, um, it's changed my job in many, many ways. Um, And at the same time, a lot of things are still the same. Um, I'm seeing a lot of the same types of of patients that I've seen before, as well as the patients that are, you know, afflicted with the coronavirus or with symptoms where we might think they have the coronavirus. But it's changed my interactions at the bedside greatly because of new restrictions on visitors, especially. Um, my patients before, we didn't have visiting hours, so their loved ones could come and be with them. And actually, in this hospital, you can sleep over if you want in, in the room to be with your loved ones. And now they can't come. And so my patients' illnesses have stayed the same, um, but their fear and their anxiety and, and their loneliness has grown um, exponentially. So as a nurse, suddenly, uh, you know, one who's already caring for them health-wise are, are you finding yourself you have to help them emotionally more so than before? A nurse is always uh, concerned about the emotional state of her patients or of his patients. Um, it's part of the whole whole human concept and that old, you know, everybody knows nursing is a synonymous with compassion, right? But now uh, it's less about the medical portion and it's more about that emotional connection with my patients. I've become their nurse, but I've also become their family for them and and for their family who are calling in <laughs> sometimes all day long just to have their fears assuaged about their family member that they can't see. 
I, mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine how stressful this must be for family members with their loved ones in the hospital, let alone, and we'll talk about this in a second, let alone the patients, but the family members calling in to, to check on the status of their loved one. What do you have to say? What do you do? What's that? Could you walk me through that? What that's like? It's very, it is, it is usually, um, well, we'll have a secretary who'll give the phone to me. Um, God bless her, but it is uh, the nurse talking to the family member most of the time. Doctors will call with updates as well, especially if somebody has like a medical power of attorney. But it's, um, I'm usually the one that's on the phone with the, with the daughter, husband, mother, whatever, uh, giving updates. And it's a strange feeling to have to do that because now you've got your patient that you're caring for medically and emotionally, but you're, you're the nurse for this person that you can't even see anymore. And it's terrifying for them. I know that. And I try not to think about this because I can't be emotional, too emotional myself at work, but I, it would be terrifying for me to have my mother in the hospital and not even be able to be with her. Now, you say, you know, you, as a nurse, you can't be emotional. Is that the kind of person, is that kind of nurse you were before, you, you know, kind of like a, you know, by the book nurse delivering medical care, uh, and now you're like their confidant and friend? I mean, is that a dramatic shift for you personally? It is. I'm a lot more, uh, I call it touchy-feely. And I've always been, you always want to earn their trust and, and show them affection because a person isn't just numbers in a medical chart. Of course, a person is in the hospital, usually fear and pain and a lot of uncertainty. But I'm, my focus is more on that now. Um, doing that, that touchy-feely side, I'm giving a lot more hugs. And it's okay to be emotional. It's appropriate to be emotional. But also, it's, and this is my philosophy anywhere in any crisis, not just in my nursing career, when, when somebody is uh, in a position where they might panic or they might become hysterical, especially if it might lead to them hurting themselves, it's very important not to dissolve into tears or into their fear and uncertainty. You need to be calm and bring the level and the, the volume in the room down and be that I, I love cliches, but to be that port in the storm for them to see she's not freaking out. So maybe I don't need to freak out. And she must really know what she's doing. So if she's not freaking out, maybe I need to breathe and listen to her. And that's very important when you're dealing with patients in a vulnerable skin. Have you had that happen recently? Have you had any vulnerable patients with issues freak out on you? And, and what do you do in a situation like that? It seems to be happening a lot lately. I think everybody's really feeling the fear and the trauma because especially a lot of patients are elderly and they've got the news on in their room all day long. Um, and then many oh, patients I, oh, recently. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't want to interrupt there. I hadn't even thought about that. So every room has a television on and they're probably watching the news. So that's probably feeding their anxiety. It really does enhance their anxiety. I mean, these people are stuck in the hospital away from their family. Plus they're hurt with something medical and they, you know, they fear the world outside the hospital, so they don't want to be there, but they also feel like this is the safest place for me. It's a really difficult place for a person to be. And a lot of patients are it's like reverse care. They Are you safe out there? You better be safe. You know, there are a lot of silver linings to me that have come out of this pandemic that I'm trying really hard to focus on. And one of them is that people are so much more caring. You know, a man stopped me in the grocery store the other day when I was in my scrubs. I'm just trying to grab some eggs, which thankfully I was able to get. And he stopped me and, and thanked me for my service. It really touched me. Or people in my community sewing masks for healthcare workers, firemen in my community lined up 
the driveway on the way to the hospital, and they had an enormous crane and an enormous American flag, and they had signs thanking the nurses, and I started my day off crying because I'm just so grateful. What about people with mental health issues? Did you deal with any of those as patients, and how are they uh, dealing with this? Or are they even aware of what's going on, or are they paranoid? I, I think most of them feel it. I always say, because I really love psychiatric nursing, I always say that all nursing is psych nursing because of all of all of us, every single human has something mental health uh, fixated going on with them, depression, anxiety, personality disorders. I've probably got a bunch of them, God knows. People are in crisis, and I find a lot more. You, you know that a lot of people with respiratory issues are coming to the ED or the emergency department, um, but a lot of people with emotional issues are coming to the emergency department. It's, it's really, this has really been a catalyst for people's worst fears. And I know recently I've had, because I have elderly people with dementia on my, on my floors, um, even though they can't necessarily communicate with me, they feel the loss of not having their loved ones there. And it's possible to console somebody who's demented um, without something familiar in their room. And of course I can't give that to them right now. Their loved ones, their wife, their son can't come and be with them and they don't know who I am and they're terrified. I imagine medication comes to play at some point here. It does at at times. And, but also going back to that touchy feely nursing, I have a, I call them my friends, but I had a patient this week who is um, absolutely delirious and, and really thought that I was trying to hurt them. And, you know, we called the family member on the phone, but they, that was just a voice to him. He didn't, he didn't understand that that was actually his wife. And he pleaded with me all day not to hurt him. And I don't know what he was seeing in his head, but he didn't see a hospital and a caring nurse. It was difficult. So I spent a lot of time it was the only thing I could do to sit at his bedside and rub his back and I found a song that he liked I sang to him and it quieted him and I I got him to eat some food because if you think your nurses are your captors uh, you're not going to trust the food that they give you or the medicines they give you what song did you sing to him sang to him I and I don't know why but I every time we say goodbye was in my head that day so that's what I sang to him and it worked Wow. Uh, so he calmed down. You were, I mean, you're, you just said you're giving him back rubs. Uh, you're hanging out with him. I mean, you're spending a lot of focused time with this one, your friend. What, what's happening on the rest of the floor while that's happening? Are, 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 there, are there gaps in the system because all of a sudden you are spending more time with your patients? Yeah, they all need you all at the same time. So you're in there petting one and hugging one and helping them and you know, there's not enough staff to have one person with per patient to sit in there and soothe them all day. How many patients are on your floor? Oh, goodness. Several, <laughs> probably 30. And how many and nurses are on staff at that time with you? It varies. You can have between three and five patients. Or if a nurse is sick and out or something, you might have six or seven patients, you know, but that's not every day. But right now, is that the standard for you? You know, five or six patients at a time. Okay, so you're some going from one patient. Some of them are heavier. Right, I got you. So depending on what their ailment and their mental condition. So you go from one patient. So let's say your friend who you're singing to um, and rubbing his back. What were you wearing for uh, protective gear? With that one, I have just gloves. Just gloves. <laughs> He wasn't a respiratory patient or anything like that. So I felt safe in that situation. 
do you currently have respiratory patients as well on your floor? Absolutely, always, <laughs> but yes, and, especially and they, now. That they've been getting a positive diagnosis for COVID. Sometimes, but it also takes days to get that positive diagnosis because at my facility we don't currently have the rapid test capability. So sometimes it's five days and somebody comes in. And unfortunately, all the symptoms of this COVID disease are very common symptoms of other diseases. So we had yesterday, somebody came in, says, I've been coughing for a month. I have shortness of breath. I can't taste things. I have a fever. She might just have influenza. She might have COPD, um, maybe bad allergies or reactive airway disease. But we still have to put them on precautions and do the COVID swab and wait for five days until we know. So uh, are you personally giving the COVID swab to people? I, yes, I gave. <laughs> um, it's not funny at all, but I'm laughing because I gave one to a, one of my disoriented patients this week, and uh, it was not it was not fun. You know, it's not easy to swab somebody's do a uh, pharyngeal swab on somebody that's trying to fight you. <laughs> Physically fight you. Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's always that in nursing, especially with confused patients and all sorts of patients. <laughs> if you're swabbing. Are you wearing extra protective gear? No, not unless they're coughing or sneezing. And this patient wasn't coughing or sneezing yet um, or at that time. So I came in and they were very confused, um, usually very peacefully confused. So I thought maybe this is going to go okay. And, of course, uh, even for any of us, if you stick a swab up somebody's nose into the back of their throat, they become quite agitated. So I uh, I did have to have another nurse come and uh, – not really restrain the patient, but, you know, make sure that those swinging arms weren't going to get me before I get to swab him. You know, I'm just visualizing this. Uh, two nurses kind of wrestling a patient and one <laughs> trying to swab up the other the patient's nose. How how long is that swab? It's, not, it's several inches long. It's probably, I would say I have to enter your, your skull cavity two or three inches. Have Have you ever been swabbed? Swab. No, <laughs> don't want to be, but it is, it's the same uh, as a flu swab. So does it hurt? Sensitive nose or if you're okay. congested, but um, it's more like uncomfortable and it will make you sneeze. <laughs> and adding in, uh, let's say a mental illness or some trauma or stress, I, I can see how that would trigger somebody to, to be defensive, to act defensively like your patient did. Yeah, and if you've spent hours or shifts trying to build trust with a patient to convince them that you're not there to hurt them, all of a sudden it, it sets you back to have to restrain them and, and shove something up their nose. Wow. And then it's five days before you find out that whether they're positive or negative. Yes. And then you're also treating them for whatever they're there for in the first place, but now you're in this period of waiting to find out, is there any additional safety precautions you take because what happens five days from now if that test comes back positive <laughs> it depends on whether or not they're coughing and sneezing if they've obviously okay. got some sort of respiratory ailment that were and they're really actively coughing you take precautions for those five days you always treat them like they're positive until you know that they're negative so you would use additional ppe if you have it if you can there are specific PPEs that you would use with a positive COVID case. Can you tell me about, do you have those on your floor? How many of those do you have on the floor? And 
what that actually entails, what 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 kind of gear that is, and it is in short supply, and of course, for the entire facility, those sorts of supplies are more concentrated to like the emergency department because people are coming in off the street, and those nurses are at greater risk, or the critical care floor because the, most of those patients are more severely ill and need more frequent interventions. But on my floor, we have two sets of the um, the masks that are required to to be worn with a patient who's positive, which is uh, drastically short of what we need because a patient will have several staff members in and out of their room all day long and <laughs> more than two. <laughs> they need more than two people to come see them. So you're saying that there are two of these complete outfits head to toe and then after a staff goes in to the room they leave. What happens to that gear? It gets taken off or doffed in a very specific uh, very specific sequence. It takes two people to don and doff that gear because the other person is a safety check to make sure that you're doing it correctly um, and to help you take off the equipment without putting setting the equipment somewhere where it's also going to contaminate that surface. After that, it's taken to a room where it's uh, sterilized with a special detergent, and then it has to dry for 20 minutes. So while that equipment is drying, if another, mem- another staff member has to go into that room, a lab person, uh, physician, a therapist, whomever, respiratory therapist, um, that's 20 minutes of time where they can't use that equipment and go into that room. And 20 minutes is a long time for a sick patient. 20 minutes plus the donning and removing of the gear. So it could even, that probably takes a couple minutes. And that's for one patient. You have 30 patients on that floor, but not all of them have COVID, but let's, are there multiple COVID cases on that floor? Absolutely. And I, I don't know how many because it changes every day, um, but I would say at least 10. 10 patients. We've got two suits. The suit is, does the nurse actually do the wash down with the detergent or is that somebody else's job? Yes, the nurse or the aide or whomever, it's their job to wear. And it's like, um, it's like a helmet uh, with okay. an eye shield and it's, it's oppressive so that obviously air particles aren't being exchanged between you and the patient. And the nurse or the aide or whomever was wearing that equipment cleans that equipment. And uh, so obviously because of the scarcity, it's not just the time that the patient doesn't have somebody at their bedside. It's now I need to go into this room and I know this equipment exists somewhere. You've got to track it down. Where is it? Wow. Meanwhile, the patient's in there wondering how come no one's coming out. They're pressing the call button or the help button, watching the news, getting more paranoid. And then, it's many, many could be, I mean, I'm not going to do the math here, but in a stressful situation, there could be many, many minutes, if not hours waits for people if everyone needed at the same time. Have you run into that situation where it's like people are scrambling, looking at the clock saying, okay, 20 minutes is up. Now we go to room seven. Oh, 20 minutes. You know, is that how it gets? Is it frenetic like that? Or is it more chill? It can be frenetic. Of course, you're always, you know, if you're a nurse or any care provider, you're very practiced at keeping that uh, frenzied feeling on the inside. And not myself, but one of my colleagues last week had two such patients, and one had mental health comorbidities, so they were in there, you would say, freaking out, which is dangerous because they could hurt themselves. And then she had another one in another room that was medically crashing. So what am I going to do? I need the same equipment for both patients, and I need to be there at the same time. And I can't send another staff member because that other set of PPE is with somebody else. 
So do I let the patient fall or do I let the patient crash? And you've got to make those decisions as a nurse. You're going to take the patient who's crashing first and hope the, the patient that's freaking out isn't going to fall and hurt themselves. I'm just trying to process this. This is adding a whole additional level of complexity to the nursing job because if before you were compassionate and sensitive and worried about someone because of their illness and you're like, Oh, you know what we have to do to get them better. And you have these steps that are, you know, that you've been drilled on and learned through your education. And then you have something that's totally outside your control and totally outside the, the medical side of things. Is that adding an additional level of stress to the nurse as well? Uh, Like kind of like an existential stress is like, ah, this is out of my control. And I, and I have to, which, who am I going to go to first? Who am I going to save? Absolutely. And you always have to triage that. We we call it triage. You know, you may always have a patient and, you know, this one has uh, some sudden cardiac emergency and this one has some sort of breathing difficulty and this one has pain. Who do you go see first? Who's it going to be? And it's not only that, but the patient, no matter what their situation, you know, we're trained and it's natural for us to believe that that nurse that's taking care of you in the hospital is in total control. You are supposed to be their pillar of strength. But the patient is sick, so they don't understand, or some of them do, but not, they don't always understand, well, she's got four other patients, too, and I, she can't be in two places at once. They're demanding sometimes, and they have every right to be. They're sick, and they need help. And then there's the added stress on the nurse that I, not only do I have to sterilize that equipment for my own safety, but for my patient's safety. I can't take this patient's germs into this patient's room. But also my colleagues might be carrying this virus, and if they give it to me, not only will I be sick, but I'll give it to my patients, and I'll give it to my family. So it's like there's no safe place to rest. <laughs> Is there any counseling or therapy available for the workers at your hospital to deal with that? Because I would think talking about that and getting an outside, I don't know, opinion or some reassurance that you're that it's okay. This is all you can do. I mean, it it would it would seem to be a a, a worrisome burden on our staff to have that and how that affects their efficiency. So are there people helping you guys? Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it or how tired you are at any given minute, we're all healthcare providers. And so there isn't an official, uh, we haven't called in a team of social workers or a hotline or anything like that. But I've noticed that the other thing that's changing in my practice lately is I've become a nurse for the nurses. And uh, once you leave that room, usually outside of a pandemic, you leave the room and you can vent with your colleagues or you can, you know, turn your energy off for a second and do charting. And now when I leave that patient's room, I come out to the nurse's station and my colleagues are scared and they're tired and you've got to dig a little bit deeper and be a nurse for them and say, Hey, you're entitled to your feelings or, you know, you're going through trauma right now. Let me help you unpack that as a wingman and as a colleague. So we're becoming the emotional support for each other, which is a beautiful thing, but it's also very difficult and very exhausting. How many hours a week do you work on average? I'm scheduled for 36. You never leave on time. So I would say about 40 hours unless you pick up an extra shift. And all nurses are a little bit different. Some of them work 20 hours a week. Some of them work more. Some nurses are superheroes and they can pull six or seven shifts in a row. But after four, I'm, I'm basically almost dead. Because so, how long is each hours shift? For me. How long is each 12 shift? 12 to 13 hours. If you wow. leave on time, it's 12 hours. What time do you eat lunch? That's always my, uh, what, 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 what's your lunch break like? Are there breaks for you to have, you know, a cup of coffee or go outside for a walk? 
uh, during that 12 hours? I don't go outside for a walk because I have to be nearby, even if I'm eating lunch, if one of my patients, uh, and thankfully, thank God, knock on wood, this has not happened to me recently, but if one of your patients has a code, as in they're, you know, they're really, really hastening their way out the door medically, uh, you've got to drop your lunch and get back in there. But I can go to a break room and, and take 30 minutes to eat and uh, call my family, check my Facebook look at a picture of my dog, do some centering, but it's never at the same time. And we're hungry, man. Prior to the pandemic, would you be eating at the hospital cafeteria or are you bringing your own lunch? What was, how's it work? What's the food availability like at the hospital now? The food luckily at the hospital is wonderful. I bring my own lunch though, because uh, it's easy to keep nearby. You go out and you heat it up. You don't have to interact with anybody because I really love people, but it has to be said that seven hours into your shift of all of this mayhem, you really need to not see or talk to anybody for a minute sometimes. What about other shortages that we might not think of medical supplies that are rarer now? Is that happening? There are things like that we sterilize things with, and we're being told uh, you have to sterilize surfaces more frequently. And, you know, you betcha when I come in, I sterilize my workstation first thing. Um, but it's hard to find those, they're called sandy cloths. It's hard to find those sandy cloth wipes in the hospital now because they're being used so much more frequently. And that's just something that we couldn't project. It's not something that you predict at the beginning of your fiscal planning for the year that we're going to have an unprecedented international emergency to take up these supplies. Being more careful with gloves, being more careful with regular masks. I mean, there are procedures that you have to wear a mask for that has nothing to do with a coronavirus. And uh, you have to you know, reusing masks is something that a year ago any nurse would have said, "I will never do that." And now you've you've got. To, well, what you kind of to. procedure? What kind of procedure would you be wearing a mask that isn't coronavirus related, and then you're not sterilizing that? What do you do with it afterwards to reuse it? Like you put it in your pocket, or, or so first, what what you what, what kind of pocket. procedure? Okay. Things like um, if somebody has a pick line, which is like an IV line, it just goes into a larger vessel in your upper arm. If you're changing that dressing, you have to mask yourself and the patient because that's a, a great portal for infection. So if you're breathing over it or you sneeze suddenly or your patient doesn't have the mental status to look away and breathe the other way, you have to wear a mask so that you're not putting mouth germs into your artery germs. Sometimes other like wound dressing changes, if you're the provider's doing a spinal tap and you're helping them. You can't be breathing into somebody's uh, cerebrospinal fluid either. <laughs> when we talk about these particular masks, what are those masks rated at? Are they the same type of, you know, what kind of mask are they basically? Those are your standard. That's what you see uh, people wearing in the grocery stores right now. It's just a cloth or a paper mask. Um, they're akin okay. to the ones that people are sewing uh, so generously. And the mask that you use for COVID patients is a is a much different kind of mask, and those are definitely in scarce supply. So let's get back to this scarce supply. Uh, before we even talk about those COVID masks, when you talked about those sanitizing wipes that you said, oh, you know, it's kind of hard to find them. What does that actually mean, hard to find them? In days before uh, the pandemic, would you go to a supply cabinet on your floor and there would be boxes and boxes of these things? And what is it like now? Yes. And days before, there were a lot in the supply closets. And also, it was just policy to have a um, a tub of them in every single room. 
and now you go into a room and granted it means I've been spoiled, but you go into a room and there are none in there. So you think, well, maybe there's some in my other room and there aren't. And then there's a station between rooms where supplies that run out frequently are kept. And you look in there and there's none in there. So you go down to the supply room and you've got one tub and it's like, well, <laughs> I better use these, uh, use these wisely today, huh? And this is one hospital in Maine. I, you know, it's just trying to envision multiplying this by, you know, all the hospitals in Maine or all the hospitals in the world, or even in let's say, the developing world where they might not even have the supply chain that we have. I mean, that's Absolutely. what, you know, it's kind of disturbing is that, I mean, this just seems like a very basic tool for healthcare workers to have is the ability to sterilize the work surface. And if we don't have that, is there spread of either COVID or other diseases or other bugs, germs, because we're not able to sterilize. And I I think we will see that. Yeah. Um, Because hospitals are dirty places, despite what people think of them as. And I think we will see a spread of things like E. coli contamination and influenza spreading quicker, uh, MRSA, any any number of things that those wipes wipes eradicate. I think we're going to see a spread of other opportunistic infections as well. Well, let's for a moment not, then talk about cl- about cleaning. I imagine while there's a certain amount of sterilization that you do on your workstation when you go into uh, see your patients in their rooms and things like that, but the general cleaning of your floor at the hospital is there a particular uh, you know, is there a, a janitor that takes care of your floor and how often are they coming through to clean and things like that? It seems, and I have to say that those people are um, are really lifesavers. You never think of that when people want to think, thank the people keeping the healthcare system afloat. They always think of nurses, and I'm very grateful that they do. I appreciate it. But the people on our cleaning staff are really, uh, oh gosh, I can't even think of an appropriate metaphor, but they are they are working so hard, cleaning almost constantly trying to do whatever we can to keep floors clean, to keep surfaces clean. They're visiting our my patients, and every time somebody's in a patient's room, that's still a, an encounter. So, you know, they provide care to my patients, too, in a small way, just by being pleasant and by making them feel safe and clean. They're my are heroes. They wearing, <laughs> are they wearing protective gear at all? They wear gloves for regular rooms. For COVID rooms, they don't go into that room. That's we're trying to conserve the number of staff that go into rooms where somebody might have the coronavirus or they're suspected of having the coronavirus. The nurse is going in anyway. She might be performing. She might be doing the cleaning. She might be performing treatments that the respiratory therapist normally would or that a CNA normally would or any of those shared tasks because she's there anyway. And we don't want her coming out, sending in all of those different players. We'll just let her do us all of that. Uh, just know. to backtrack for a second, I'm I'm glad you called. Uh, you know, I think hero is a word that gets thrown around a lot in crisis, especially. And as a former custodian myself, I've had a couple different janitorial jobs that were not life threatening. Um, that's a tough job to begin with. It's a thankless job. You have to do it really well because the boss will notice if it's not done correctly, uh, but they won't notice if it's done correctly. These are low-wage workers, uh, are they treated with respect by the hospital, do you feel? Well, they're treated with respect by me, and that's all the control Mm -hmm. that I have over that. I think the hospital treats them as well as they treat any employees, if that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a large city hospital, and so they have demands, and we 
of, you know, everybody with, with whatever skilled labor that we bring to that, that floor, um, we have to meet those demands. Um, but you're right, absolutely, that if it's done poorly, it's noticed. But if it's done well, it isn't noticed. That's the nature of the job. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things that will come out of the pandemic, and there are many wonderful things that will come out of this. But I think that we're starting to appreciate that somebody doesn't have a Ph.D. doesn't mean that their work isn't just as important. Oh, and I exactly. think we're leveling the playing field as far as appreciation goes for people. I mean, I think the little girl at my Hanford is my hero, and it's a trite phrase, but I've got to eat. And we're seeing it all through our society, the so-called non-essential, the, the Instagram influencers, the sports stars, these ones who have made fortunes. Meanwhile, who are the true heroes but our comrades, the workers, and in the trenches in jobs that are potentially dangerous. You know, when I, dangerous. When I was in the service in the Coast Guard and I was on a you know flight deck crew, I got hazardous duty pay every month. You know, I got $150 extra a month. Uh, just for standing on a flight deck, right? Uh, these people, I, I especially think of uh, those two jobs we're talking about, the, the janitors and, you know, our food, uh, our uh, grocery store workers, exposed to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that they can't really social distance from. You know, they're, they're low-paid low workers. I was wondering specifically if that many of the cleaners and that support staff are made up of what we like to call new mainers you know, refugees, immigrants from away, uh, especially with the job market prior to prior to the pandemic striking. Unemployment was at almost an all-time low in Maine, uh, desperate labor shortage. At your hospital, are those positions filled by new Mainers? Sometimes. But I also, to be honest, see them more, it's a very female-heavy job. I see them filled with working-class people, like the people that raised me and the person that I mm-hmm. was before a series of very fortunate events allowed me to get my degree. You know, these, these are the term working class used to be a dismissive term, but um, those laborers are, are pulling it together. And there are those new Mainers and look what a benefit to society. They right. This whole blue collar versus white collar thing that the class struggle, all these things, like you say, there are, there can be great things that come out post pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for, you know, revolution on many uh, on different levels of society, because this has been a real wake-up call, and uh, especially when we see, you know, these essential workers versus non-essential workers, because uh, journalists, talk show hosts, non-essential, cleaners, yeah. grocery clerks, essential. Uh, another thing I'd just like to get back to is this whole idea of the families not being able to visit. Uh, how has that changed? First of all, like a Noise levels, uh, you know, confusion on the floor, you know, the ins and outs of people. Is it a, you know, quieter place now because of that? It's quieter in the rooms and in the halls. And I'm never going to lie to you. I've had patients before that I've taken care of and their family in the room is, is disruptive. So I guess I have to pause and be grateful that now I can just go in and deliver care. Um, but it is, it's quieter on the floor. The phone rings more frequently. <laughs> because some of them are calling nonstop because they're scared and also because they're probably home with nothing to do because they're probably out of work. So now they're unemployed, they're food vulnerable. um, They're, you know, they're scared for their loved one. They're stuck and they're experiencing trauma just like the rest of us. And I'm, I'm very grateful. I have to say that 
I'm still experiencing the trauma of caring for our population. But as a nurse, it has to be said that I'm very grateful that this is designed so that I still have a job. I still have income. I have my livelihood and I have my normalcy. Just like before, I get up three to four days a week and I go to work and I earn a living. But you're doing a, a, you know, a job way beyond the call of what us normal humans can even begin to imagine. Okay. So that, I want to end this uh, interview with one final question here. You know, what can people, these non-essentials like ourselves, what can we do to help healthcare workers in our communities? Let them sleep. <laughs> what you what you can do is is take care of each other and I know that's probably the corny response but not only can you stay inside stay inside um but just like the governor said in her press release the other day and I don't think I've ever been impressed with so much with a governor and I, in fact I don't think I've ever said anything positive about a governor in my whole life but <laughs> I was very impressed that she said be patient with your children and your loved ones because what really scares me is that people are inside feeling traumatized and they're taking it out on each other. That children that before their only safe place was school, now they're trapped inside with somebody who tormented them before, but now they've got an added layer of stress and trauma. What people can do is stay inside and stay clean and treat people and uh, find centering activities where you can deal with the trauma without hurting somebody else. And to keep each other safe and to pay attention and learn lessons. And when we come out of this, I don't want a return to normal. I want normalcy with a new normal. Yeah, can with this new normal be better? Order. Do you see the new I normal so. being better? Yeah, okay. Well, that sounds good Absolutely. from you. Uh, someone From someone on the front lines that can have that attitude amidst this to say, yeah, the new normal. Because this is going to end. This pandemic will end. But then we'll have to yes. clean up the pieces afterwards. Well, one last question. Really, this is the last one. Should we wash our hands? <laughs> no, just let it go. Just <laughs> yes, wash your hands. Wash your hands and, and cover your cough and, you know, sterilize those doorknobs, man, and don't don't visit. We've just had Easter, and I heard so many counts of people saying, well, you know what? It's a holiday. I'm, I'm going over to my in-law's house. For the love of God. <laughs> Stay home. It is not only keeping you safe or your loved ones safe. You might be in Hannaford and not be sick and put those germs on germs that you caught at your in-laws' house on Easter on a can of beans, and your nurse, me, brings them home and then I give them to my patients. Germs are like glitter. If it exists somewhere, it will exist everywhere if you do not sit down and wash your hands. Wash your hands. Germs, germs <laughs> are like glitter. I'm taking that away. That's that's a good one and. <laughs> <laughs> that viruses don't take holidays. Absolutely. Jane, well, thank you. I don't want to get all emotional here, but thank you so much uh, for your service in many ways. And, you know, there's let people know, obviously, at your workforce that Mainers are thinking about them and that uh, we're very, very grateful. So keep up the good work and maybe we'll check in a in a couple of weeks to see if anything's changed out there. Absolutely. And Mainers as a community are stronger and closer than we've ever been before. Mom, can I take this can of use back to the store and keep the money? Why, yes. But what made you think about doing that all of a sudden? Well, heck, Mom. They got a big sign in the store about it. 
They're paying real money for this used fat now. Yes, you may be surprised at how much dealers are paying for used fats these days. It soon counts up. You see, used fats are still needed very much. This country and the whole world are still short of oils for making soap and other industrial products. So whether you let Junior keep the change or use the money to cut down your grocery bills, it pays to save every drop of used fat. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. I want to thank Jane very much for her time uh, to talk about what it's like to work at a hospital in Maine during this pandemic. Give me lots of things to think about. Uh, you know, generally not thinking about what nurses do every day. So that's a good wake up for me to see what essential people are doing. Uh, but like Jane said, there are many terrible things that can come out of terrible things coming out of this crisis, right? We, there's so much trials and tribulations, but some good things could come out. And I think Jane and her colleagues and many others who are essential workers are showing how we can be more creative than we've ever been before and closer as a community, perhaps, because we have a shared experience and a bonding. So I think Jane and healthcare workers, all healthcare workers, nursing homes, rehabs, you know, the cleaners, the CNAs, the support staff, all, all of them are heroes. So I appreciate speaking to Jane. And if you're a healthcare worker or know someone who is and want to share their story or your story, please let me know. Uh, next next week on Open Ears Maine, uh, we're going to be talking to more Mainers about how the pandemic is affecting their life. Uh, we're going to speak to a teacher who's teaching from home. We're going to speak to a restaurant owner who recently opened a brand new restaurant and now it's closed. We'll be speaking to a barber about how the pandemic has impacted his industry, a, a politician, and others. Thursdays, I'm sorry, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 till 8 p.m. And if you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, check out my podcast, Devils and Dirtbags. You can get that at devilsanddirtbags.com, mainernews.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're in the middle of a pandemic obviously. And we don't really know anything until it's over. And we can study the data. We don't know anything except our own experiences. And that's the purpose of this show. I want to hear your stories because after all, stories are how we learn about the world around us. I want to know what you've been going through. Email me, crash at crashberry.com. <laughs> 